0: This is strength coach, author, and keynote speaker, Brett Bartholomew from artofcoaching.com, and this is my episode with Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat.
1: Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat.
0: Being just who I am is a really nice way to help better determine who's meant to be along my side. right? If I try to please everybody, I try to suck up, I try to do this, if I would have taken every job, everybody thought I should have taken. And I mean, you should have, a prime example I'll give you is in 2015, I was offered a job at the NFL. I would have worked with a very dear friend of mine and I would have taken it. It certainly like wasn't, oh, I was too good for it, but I had already taken a job somewhere else. The amount of fake friends I had 24 hours after I had received that offer was unbelievable.
1: Yes, we're back with another episode and we have Brett Bartholomew on the show today. Brett delivers great insights coming up in an episode we know you're going to love. Big thanks to everyone. Again, we got some great messages over the last few weeks about our previous episodes of Brian Keane, Joe Barr, and some of the other ones like Pat Dively. We'd love to keep giving you great guests, so do get in touch if you have any suggestions. And also, thanks again for liking, sharing, rating, and reviewing the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done so already, please do. And also sign up for our newsletter at sleep, eat, perform, repeat.com. But just before we dive in, a quick shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Hawara, Performance Wellbeing Growth Partner. Visit the website at hawaralife.com. That's H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings.
2: Today we spoke with Brett Bartholomew, coach, best-selling author and founder of Art of Coaching. Brett is a keynote speaker, performance coach and consultant. His experience includes working with members of Fortune 500 companies, the US Special Forces, sporting organizations and professional athletes. Brett is also a self-published best-selling author of Conscious Coaching, the art and science of building buy-in. He's coached a diverse range of athletes from across 23 sports worldwide at levels ranging from youth athletes to Olympians. He supported numerous Super Bowl and World Series champions, along with several professional fighters. Today we start with the grooming ritual for Brett then unpacks interactions and interventions and why multimodal communication is paramount for success in any endeavour. He digs into assessing communication and puts the question as to why people don't benchmark their capabilities in order to get better when public speaking. Brett shares his doctoral research, which is focused on the role of power dynamics, persuasion, optimizing change management within organizations. Brett finishes with his mentors from the world of rap and hip hop, what he has taken from their journeys. We highly recommend you check out his online courses, Bought In, Valued, Blindspot, his Brand Builder Workshop, and his Top Class Podcast. Brett, thanks very much for giving us your time. We'd like to start with a question that we hope you haven't been asked before on this, on any show really is really impressed with that beard. I mean, Kieran and I here are talking about, and I have a beard, and it kind of tells the tale about brand. And it's kind of nearly mm-hmm. where we'd like to start with you because you're someone that tells people how to help build their brand. Mm.
0: So first of all, I'm going to try to match your late night DJ FM voice. David, um, you and Kieran, uh it's like this is very intimidating to try to match it. Usually, I sound more like this or gravelly. Uh, what would you like to know about the beard? I'm I'm happy to dive deep.
2: What's a, you know, we talk to people a lot about behavior, rituals, habits. What make what makes them tick, and kind of we're curious as to how do you show up in the world and and why is it a beard you've gone for?
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you some inside scoop since you went with an original opening since you guys were true pros and how you reached out and you were super patient and awesome during what is a wild time in my life right now. So you're going to get some inside scoop. It actually took a long time to get this beard. You might not know this, David, but through college, I had really bad acne and no beard. I thought it was acne. I mean, I was on like this serious, most like nuclear bomb type stuff for acne in the world. Little did I know that it was just manly follicles of hair trying their best to get through and giving my face this reddish irritation that made women flock to me with wild abandon. Um, no, but like, I think the beard came in really around like 25, 27. I couldn't rock it for a while because I did a lot of work with military in addition to, to pro sport and youth sport. And whenever I went on a military base, well, certain military bases, in particular, when we did work with the Navy, you could not have facial hair. Um, that said, when I went to other military bases, like it became a, a point of endearment, and actually uh, was a buy-in piece for us. Meaning, I, I had gone and given a presentation on periodization and program design to some folks, that I think they were uh, Marines. And you know, at the end of the day, I, I remember I was heading home, and one of the guys goes, "You know what I like best about your presentation?" And I said, "What?" And he goes, "Your beard." He goes, "Keep that going if you want to earn our respect." And I just laughed my ass off. But um, yeah, the, I, I think the thing is just. I'm a little rough around the edges. I'm more of an antihero. I'm not really somebody that's super clean cut. I'm not the person you probably bring your uh bring home to your mom and and they think this is the guy that wears layered coats and cardigans. And, <laughs> you know, I'm not a fall catalog. I'm a little bit more Eddie Brock and Venom than I am Toby oh, Maguire yeah. and Spider Man. Oh, yeah. And so the beard just kind of feels a little bit more who I am, man. I'm I'm an imperfect mess of a human being. And the beard says, I want to go along for the ride.
1: Talk to us about were you always comfortable with being that imperfect person? Or you mentioned before recently actually about facades and people put up facades these days. It sounds like you just are gone past that and there's not one bit of you that's not authentic anymore.
0: It's interesting, right? Like because we all have parts of ourselves that are inauthentic, whether we try to do that or not. It's it's a form of like what Irving Goffman would call impression management, but there's functional inauthenticity, right? Where we all wear different masks for hopefully a utilitarian purpose. Um, but I'm pretty boring. You know, I uh, I think a lot of that is what I experienced at an early age, nearly losing my life. And knowing that there's some members of my family that, uh, sure, we've had like a centenarian and all that, but we've also had people that die relatively young. I really just don't have time to waste with with a lot of that stuff. I I'm 35, I'll be 36 this year, but I feel like I'm going on 80. And so for me, being just who I am is a really nice way to help better determine who's meant to be along my side, right? If I try to please everybody, I try to suck up. I try to do this. If I would have taken every job, everybody thought I should have taken. And I mean, you should have, a prime example uh, I'll give you is in 2015, I was offered a job at the NFL. I would have worked with a very dear friend of mine and I would have taken it. It certainly like wasn't, oh, I was too good for it, but I had already taken a job somewhere else the amount of fake friends I had 24 hours after I had received that offer was unbelievable. I would say even after writing Conscious Coaching, I mean, there were plenty of people that were just not super kind to me coming up in the field. You know, I, I think if you're, when you're young in the field and you have a hunger, people look at you, especially members of the old guard and strength and conditioning, like you're trying to like prove them wrong or steal their market share. And I, I was never some guy that wanted to say, oh, this kind of training is stupid. That's this. You know, I, like I was just a student of the game. It's kind of like my love for hip hop. I love hip hop. And if you if you watch great rappers talk about other great rappers, they're always giving each other credit. But, you know, I, you get this chip on your shoulder after a while because you just start realizing like, listen, I'm going to stay in my lane over here. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to double down on this. I'm not really going to get into the contentious stuff. And when you do that and you're not polarized, you find that other people that aren't enamored with sexy, dramatic, nonsense are, are more likely to come to your side. And I hope that's what we're creating in Art of Coaching and, and what we do and what we did with Conscious Coaching is saying that you can be the kind of coach you want to be. You don't need to follow some mold. You don't need to be this kind of person, that kind of person. You just need to be flexible within the realities of who you actually are and and you know own that. But I think that's really hard for coaches to do because that's not, that's not etched in coach development. I don't think it's etched in physio development. I mean, is it, David? not. Awesome. Right? Like you just see in leadership development, everybody's carbon copies of another copy of another copy. And so sometimes you just need to be unapologetic, especially in gotcha society, right? I tell my wife every day, I'm like, oh God, there's, here. who knows when we're going to get canceled because somebody took something I said on the microphone out of context, but it's just kind of exhausting to be anything else other than yourself. I think, Kieran, if I, sorry, I went the long route with that, but you you got me thinking.
1: That's exactly it. Share the words and all is what you said. Be real.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
2: Brett, right, it brings us in to trust, you know, relationships. We're looking here, you know, where does interactions impact interventions? And it seems to be a space that you're really passionate about and there's a lot of purpose behind it. We'd love to talk about that a little bit more because for us as sports med physios, trust relationships, what it's all about. We didn't have to look any further than your bought-in program online, which is just brilliant.
0: I appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. And, and just for the sake of attuning your listeners, I'm going to use the word coach as a catch-all term. So if you're a physio, if you're an educator, if you're whatever, right? I Like a coach by, by most standard definitions is somebody who guides and leads and educates and orchestrates. So I'm going to use that term kind of ubiquitously. Uh, yeah, I, here's the thing. I nearly lost my life uh, d- in part due to poor medical care that was rooted in poor communication. And uh, I had always had a fascination with the human body. And so in those two fascinations, one of kind of the social physics of the world, social dynamics, and also the human body coalesced that gave way to a career in coaching that's lasted more than 15 years. I think it'll be 16 or 17 at this point in some regard. Um, you know, and you look at the broader evidence of this, especially with you gentlemen as physios, although different country with this statistic, uh, when you look at communication skills training, which is the bedrock of trust, right? It's hard to build trust if you don't communicate well. Perhaps nowhere is the dearth of it more evident in, than in healthcare. You know, United States hospitals alone, uh, in a statistic of, I believe it was 2010 uh, article, waste over $12 billion annually as a result of communication and efficiency amongst healthcare providers. Uh, and, and there's a host of other kind of byproducts of poor communication as well, many of uh, which are self-evident. But in, the, in coaching and, and just development of practitioners, I think that there's this lack of communication, training, and focus, which is, again, the, the linchpin of trust. Because so many people think they're already really good at it. And I think there's also a misunderstanding of what what communication is, what it's comprised of. You, you know, when you have decades and decades of people trying to act like it's just verbal and nonverbal and, you know, telling somebody how much you care about them. Like, it just oversimplifies a core construct. It's kind of like saying, hey, your job as a physio is to get people out of pain. Uh, well, <laughs> no. And even if it was, like, that's... Uh, that's a deeper conversation, and so we just felt like it was it was high time that something more was done about this, and we're trying to trying to bring it to the forefront.
2: And look, what's what center point to all this is, is is people, and you know we have a platform learning physio, and we we talk to the importance of building soft skills for healthcare practitioners so that they understand the importance of communication and and relationships, and ultimately, if you don't do that, patients, clients, that's not going to work out. We'd love to dig into your research we're looking here at persuasion and power dynamics all these really key principles and concepts that that must help you massively as a coach what have what are you learning through this process that you could share with us
0: yeah i mean well power dynamics are inherent you know we'll get to formal definitions if you want but i I think it's important that when we talk about terms like and this is this is all part and parcel of communication so i'm glad you brought it up david to understand communication yeah it's not just verbal nonverbal you have to understand the social physics and that's where power dynamics lies you know power is is ubiquitous it's very fluid when you ask me a question on the podcast you have the power right now i would have the power power is not good or bad it just is you can think of power almost in the way of, of depending on how nerdy the listeners are as potential energy right it represents the capacity of somebody to bring a, about psychological change in somebody's environment um, you know, changing their behavior, getting them to buy in, doing these things. Now, influence is more like kinetic energy. It's when that energy has been expressed. Kinetic energy or influence, sorry, is, is how we utilize our power. So there are various forms of power and we teach this in our workshops. I don't want to bore everybody, but I'll give you an example. Let's say we look at reward power. Let's say you're my boss, David, and you have the ability to bestow upon me a higher salary or bonuses or anything of a sort, Right. Well, you're going to, by nature of you having reward power, which is based on your position and your allocation or your um, access to certain resources, there are certain influence tactics more readily available to you. For example, you could use an exchange tactic. You could say, hey, Brett, um, I'll tell you what, I will give you a $500 bonus if you are able to meet blank KPI. And I'm giving a very... Simplified example, right? Let's say uh, it was a coach and athlete interaction. I think of a time I was working with a UFC fighter um, and this wasn't reward power. This was an example of, let's see, which one do I want to use? Uh, this would have been uh, what we'd call, we'd call referent power, okay? Referent power is all about likability, Think about a mentor, somebody that you actually really l- like or enjoy, or even Kiran would have referent power to you, right? You guys like each other. Yeah. You respect each other?
2: Uh, I know, I know. Some Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. sometimes right? Depends. Depends on the weather, you know?
0: Right. So if Kiran uh, asked you to do something and, you know, he had always been super loyal to you, he had gone above and beyond, you're more likely to do that because of the referent power he has uh, in that relationship. So referent power, again, using power analogous to uh, potential energy, because it doesn't matter if you like him, if he never actually makes a formal request or utilizes an influence tactic, that influence tactic gives way to, um, let's say, an inspirational appeal, right? You might be feeling down, he might kind of, you know, chat with you about something, and any other person that said that stuff to you, you'd be like, get this TED Talk hogwash nonsense out of here. But because you like him and you know that it's coming from a good place, that's more efficacious. I'll give one more example, okay? Um, let's say we look at a traditional kind of business. There are some people that have high positional power, right? They have a certain title or you could even look at it like legitimate power. They're the director. They're the CEO. They're the blank. Well, that would afford them the ability to use harder tactics such as a pressure tactic. Hey, do this or else and again i'm massively oversimplifying my my agent who i'm working on my next book as we talk about this so my agent he has legitimate power over me he's my agent right he also has what's called connection power he connects with possible publishers for the next book they can use pressure based influence tactics on me hey brett the deadline is blank or else the book won't get produced And, uh, you know, I don't have ill feelings about that. That just goes with that. So part of what we're trying to do is to help people understand that power and influence are not what we thought they were. They are actually very healthy things. Uh, Even if you use a hard tactic, like a pressure tactic, that's not always bad. If you use a soft tactic, that's not always good, right? There's times where a lot of people use softer, kind of more uh, just common tactics that can be manipulative. And so part of our job at Art of Coaching is to help people understand you know, if you want to build buy-in more effectively, which, which ultimately gives way, as you mentioned, David, to better interventions, because when people are bought in, they have better engagement. When they have better engagement, they typically apply more uh, effort. When they have better engagement and effort, you could argue that they're going to get better results and more consistency because uh, they identify with it. You can't do that without power. And so that's some of the rabbit holes we're going down um, and that we're teaching in real life so people can navigate these kinds of interactions uh, in real time.
1: I love this. And the art of the second part is to build trust. But before that, there's a piece on gain clarity. How important is that? And what is the first step you take to gain clarity and understand yourself better so you actually can inform them relationships that you want to build trust in a little bit more and a little bit better as well?
0: Sure. I mean, this is, this is multimodal, as you can imagine. I'll give you like the most lazy way somebody can do it. And then I'll give you, you know, one of the most in-depth ways, right? So, uh, we have a whole chapter in conscious coaching about this kind of understand yourself. And it tells people to go through these three stages of internal identification. So that's a good place for some people to start. If if they don't do that, uh, and they're more digital based, we put up a very simple yet surprisingly complex quiz. It's all free that they can take at artofcoaching.com slash what drives you like driving a car, artofcoaching.com slash what drives you. And we made it because as I talk about in conscious coaching, the problem with like things like the disc assessment and the Myers-Briggs is they use a lot of force choice questioning. They typically do not encourage people to take them multiple times in varying contexts. Um, you know, and you guys know, even from a performance standpoint, if I tested an athlete today in the weight room, I can't keep using those numbers to base, his loads off of eight months from now, right? That's, there's going to be changes there. Um, And same thing, like a doctor doesn't just prescribe somebody a medication based off symptoms they had eight months ago, right? You have to do things that are relevant. So we made this quiz um, and and within it, we made it very quick and easy, but we encourage people to take it at least three times a year and in different emotional states. So take it when you're melancholy or you feel a bit down. Take it maybe even when you're angry. Take it when you're happy, you're elated, and things are going really well. Uh, but take it under different emotional states so you can establish a little bit more of a baseline. Another thing that we did that that DISC and, and Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and those don't always account for is we counterbalance scoring. So what you see is people will engage in a form of impression management or even self-monitoring when they take these quizzes they tend to answer in the way that they'd like to be perceived or they tend to answer in the way that they believe is most socially acceptable well that skews their results right in this we we kind of account for that and every answer is weighted a little bit differently and so people are more likely to kind of get a real as long as they're being real or as real as can be they're more likely to get a result that helps them understand these these drives of which we we gave six could there be more sure right but beyond a point you don't want to muddy the waters just to make them seem deep And then when people get the result, they'll kind of see their strengths. Okay, here's one of your predominant drives. And then here are some potential snares. Now, none of this is supposed to be taken as static, just like the archetypes in conscious coaching. Nobody is one archetype. Nobody is one drive. Nobody is one way. These things are context dependent, right? I present a certain way around my family and my two-year-old. Then I present uh, in front of an audience that's 3,000 people. And what I mean present is when I'm at home, Right. I'm a little bit more relaxed in my body language. And I, you know, I'll I'll say this and we have different jokes and all those pieces when I'm on stage. Right. You have to be a little bit more formal. You can still be relaxed, but I'm going to project my voice differently. There's a lot of different nuances there. So those are some easy ways The the hardest way and not to like plug it, but to plug it. You know, we have these live workshops where we video coaches. We put them in improvised situations, role based role playing based situations under constraints And they'll, they'll, they'll role play, you know, something that they're dealing with in their life, whether that's their job, their personal life, whatever, and we'll video them. And we have formal evaluations that are, this is all tied to the doctorate that I'm doing that gives them about 24 different kind of elements that they can be evaluated on. And, and we can go into that in a moment if you'd like, but the point is, is it's the first truly live facilitated output where physios, coaches, we've even had FBI agents, we've had doctors and nurses can come, get evaluated, uh, get self-evaluations, peer evaluations, and see video replays in accordance to how they interact. And the nice thing is, is it's it's not, it doesn't need to be terrifying for anybody. It's a very like safe space where you, we talk about how you know these evaluations, the whole point is to help people manage the subjective gap. So for example, let's say you're evaluating me just on something simple like tone of voice. And let's say it's zero to three. And, and you say, well, this is, yeah, I, I gave you a three. And maybe I gave myself a one. Maybe I thought I was too loud and and all this. Well, the point is, is now we can have this conversation. Another time we were evaluating somebody on assertiveness. They thought they were a three. Uh, two other people in the group gave them a one. And then they have that discussion. And it's not like, hey, you're bad. You're good. It was oh, like I didn't notice I came across like that. Like, yeah, the inflection of your voice kind of took away from the power of your words. Your body language is doing this. And it's it's just cool because you can get people from Ireland, Spain, the United States, so many people that have cultural frames and lenses of interaction and work on that in real time and kind of walk away with a playbook of what to do next.
2: Right. We'd love to step away from that for a minute, but we're going to go back to it and just Talk to us a little bit about purpose. We're here, we, we do a lot of work with kind of well-being consultancy with corporates and we we often talk about what are they trying to do, what's what's the big thing that they're aiming towards and we're looking at a lot of the language that you're, you have on your website, you know, defining superpower, getting out of your own way, looking at blind spots, bringing your ideas fruitfully to life that they last for a long time. What are you trying to do? What's this what's this all about and has this mission or journey changed for you because there's so much there that can be leveraged together to impact and give so much value to people. So what's what's at the heart of it all?
0: Yeah, I mean it goes back to what I said at the beginning, nearly losing my life due to poor communication and medical care in part and for us it all ties back to our company vision statement. We want to change the way the world interacts when it matters most you know, the the coach or even a physio or anybody that's kind of serving a mentoring capacity to somebody other than their family, that might be the most important person in that individual's life. And so, you know, if we don't focus more on how we interact, I mean, look at the world as it is now, whether you're talking about how COVID messaging was botched in some countries, whether you're looking at, you know, uh, the, the things that we deal with, with uh, race disparities and and all these kinds of things, I mean, we're predominantly social people. And if you look at any war, economic collapse, a lot of these things are predicated in part on communication. I mean, people have misunderstandings. And while it might cause somebody just to have a a small fight with their significant other, somewhere else it's causing uh, potential genocide in the country. And I'm not trying to aggrandize this. I mean, the research is clear. There's a great article, I think it was back in the New York Times uh, that that looked at the term mokusatsu, a, a Japanese term, and its role in World War II, and shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, I, I remember the the Jap Well, I don't remember. I wasn't alive then. But reading this article, right, it was one word, two meetings. The the Japanese Emperor uh, basically they, they had asked him, Hey, America has issued a response, a threat uh, in in retaliation or in response to what you did at Pearl Harbor. What are your thoughts? And the Emperor basically uh, responded that with that term, which according to the story and the literature and and the the document meant, you know, I have no comment at this time, but it was interpreted in the United States as it's not worth commenting on. Right. And and not too long after uh, that bomb was dropped. Now that is, uh, you can use extreme examples to highlight elemental truths. So I'll say this, in what area of life does poor communication not make something worse?
1: None.
0: You know, and, and that, that was kind of the absurdity of when I came out, with conscious coaching, originally, I faced some backlash in the community because it was almost what it was is a lot of coaches and practitioners that got into the field, if they're being honest, because they liked training, they liked weight room stuff, they liked this. And now here comes somebody saying, hey, there's this whole other side of it that is very well researched. I mean, the the research academically of communication spans hundreds of years. The earliest treaties on communication dates back 5,000 years to the precepts. And, uh, then they got threatened. But I remember somebody saying, I coach and communicate every day. Why should I have to read a book to learn how to do it? That's like me saying, I wake up married to my wife every day. I shouldn't have to work on being a better husband. You know, like everybody communicates in some fashion every day. Are they all really good at it? You know? And so my response just after a while is, Hey guys, you know, just I'm open-minded. Just tell me an example in life where poor communication has made anything better. And if you can't, well, I mean, maybe we should pay attention to it. I mean, you've done enough work. Like think of the the work you've done with the Royal Sur, uh, College Surgeons in Ireland, the uh, Florida International University, whether when you publish opinion pieces in the Times, any of these pieces, and how many of those things were predicated on not only the information you had in your heads and the subject matter knowledge, but the deep interpersonal relationships that you forge as a part of those things, the respect that you earned due to the interactions, due to like these things help you get in these positions to be able to make a difference, right? And I know you've assessed lessons in interpersonal skills and leadership. Like what education did you guys ever get on this when you became a physio or when you started off in your original jobs? I mean, did any of you get actual training in how to manage power dynamics and all these things? No, No, right? And in America, we don't have recess, we don't have sex education, and we don't learn how to communicate. What a thriving society. (laughs) But, like, you know, we're expected, and no wonder every week some new TED talk or book gets punch, uh, published. And it's the same old leadership BS, right? It's the same story about some CEO at some company. And then they name drop a bunch of other CEOs and they talk just about trust and warmth and candor. And, and in the meantime, people can read that and they never go train it. And, oh, congratulations, another leadership book uh, push in the bookshelf. So we just feel like it's time to train this stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, David, did you get a lot of training in this? Where did some of your interests in this space? where did Where did everything kind of kick off for you when you realize, okay, yeah, like I'm a chartered physiotherapist. I have all this information here, but there's something else there. Like what makes you at all interested in this topic?
2: Because I looked at the people I admired, role models, mentors that had helped me in the career, and i I kind of tried to understand why, what was it about them that I thought made them successful. And that could be, GMs in US pro sport that could have been an MD I worked with it could have been even senior colleagues and what separated them was their ability to form relationships to have really strong communication in all forms empathy all, all that that's what made them good that's it was nothing it wasn't the technical it wasn't the tactical it wasn't the clinical it, w- it was that and that's kind of where where the energy behind our project came here because we were like physios public speaking articulating their thoughts, communicating what they're trying to really do, they, they could be better on that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's helpful to know. I think that uh, then what I would ask you, and we asked this in the semi-structured interviews uh, of my doctorate, is we ask people how they currently evaluate their own communication skills in context. And this isn't me trying to play like, gotcha. This is me making a broader point you know, is there a way, despite your interest in it, your knowledge in it, obviously you're, you're very skilled. How do you, how do you evaluate it? Like if you want to get better and you even want to know what you could get better at, how right now, how do you even evaluate that?
2: That's the question. To be honest, that's, that's, that's really good because we do training, we do programs for, for lifting, for, you know, what we're, when we're sticking to something, but in terms of coaching and communication, I have no idea. I've never really had an assessment on a couple of those kind of personal ID profiles you alluded to earlier, but that would be very much it.
0: Right. And and so, and I appreciate your honesty. And and that's what we found most people said is they're like, wow, yeah, like uh, we would have them evaluate themselves. Just general question, not like a true evaluation. This is part of a interview to kind of establish the need. And I'd say, hey, how do you rank yourself as a communicator one to 10 with one being not effective at all, 10 being very effective you know, and most people, as you can imagine, to be like, ah, well, you know, you can always get better. So a six or an eight or you know, nobody's perfect, lifelong learner. Uh, but then if somebody gave themselves an eight, I'd be like, awesome. Like, why did you give yourself that answer? And what methods did you use, if any, to evaluate that effectiveness? And and almost all of them were like, whoa, uh, yeah, I don't use anything formally. And, and one person caught themselves right after because they said, I mean, it's pretty much anecdotal, the state of the team and are people doing what I tell them to do. And then he was like, ooh, that sounded bad. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, because there's a difference between being bought into something and being compliant, right? Like people can do what you tell them to do. If I hold a gun to somebody's head and say, bury that body, that dude's not bought in, right? Like that, that, that is somebody that's compliant. And I know that's extreme, but it's really not that extreme when you consider how some people abuse their power There are plenty of people that abuse power and all that uh, in order to be coercive to people. And just because those people did what they said does not mean that those people are committed or bought in. That's brilliant. Just about
1: like even the, the communication pieces and what maybe motivated us to move away from physio as the main form of clinical work, something about staying in your lane. A lot of people say stay in your lane, focus on what you're meant to do get really good at that and then see how it goes. How much he do you pay to like what David Epstein would say in the book range about looking at different, different fields, different people, different people, how they communicate, how they operate, how they build relationships. As David mentioned, all them people before, they were so good at talking to everybody and anybody. And it didn't matter what field you came from or what background. They had the ability to connect at a human level.
0: Yeah, huge. I mean, huge. I said it on, a, I think it was like January uh, 3rd. Uh, well, let me not say I think it was. I actually, when you were asking that question, I fact-checked it. So, I don't want to be like, oh, if my memory serves me correct, January 3rd, full transparency, looking it up on Instagram. So, I, I had said in January 3rd on Instagram, uh, and I'll just read it off because I probably said it better then, you know, coaches deal with a tremendous variety of challenges when helping those they serve. So, for me, stay in your lane can be very tone deaf when the traffic pattern of problems that athletes and athletes being a you know synonym for clients or whatever in this case deal with very so much. Like you, you, we play a lot of roles, right? And so I think that uh, it is even more interesting to go into other lanes and I'm going to take an alternative approach in this question and then answer it directly. When you consider uh, that corporations in the business world spent more than 150 million in interpersonal skills training in 2015 alone And the reason I bring that up is because I want to play devil's advocate to myself. I'm not saying that just if we train interpersonal skills, it's going to get better. You have to be very mindful on how we do this. You know, when you look at how those corporations in the business world generally do it, a lot of these are just kind of rote leadership workshops, presentation, PowerPoint, cheesy icebreakers. You know, they're not really getting into the meat of conflict resolution. I think that you see some things now that, you know, obviously people in the FBI and law enforcement have popularized negotiation strategy workshops. I think anything's better than nothing. But I think that, um, you know, what we're trying to do with improv and role-playing is a bit different, but that's a prime example, Karan, of like going across different realms. A big part of the supporting evidence of my doctorate is looking at, uh, because when I went into the research and I'm like, I mean, am I just crazy? Do coaches not do this? And no, there are no communication training things for performance coaches, but you know who there is. Oncologists, doctors, nurses, uh, emergency response professionals, lawyers, the military. I mean, if you just type in in Google Scholar, communication skills training, oncology, a litany of research will pop up. And so, you know, we had to uh, beg, borrow, and steal from other places as we were continuing to make our case. And in, in we, I'm talking about like uh, me and my imaginary friend. I try to say we when it is our company, but now I'm talking about my doctorate. So it is just me. Um, and <laughs> I did have to look in those other spaces to make sure that, you know, I wasn't just like out of my mind. Remember reading one article uh, from 2013 that was talking about um, interpersonal conflict at the highest level of competition in sport. So European championships, World Cups, Olympic Games, and the sample size here was about 90 athletes, which is a lot when you're considering that level of competition, right? Like uh, that that, these are the one percenters of the one percenters. And 75% of those participants, of those 90 athletes, you know, basically uh, said, I have experienced conflict that negatively influenced my individual being, team cohesion, uh, collective efficacy, my performance. And even if that is only their perception, I mean, the reality is perception is a sensory oriented experience and it is how we encode our experiences, how we make sense of our reality. Um, But despite this evidence, coaches uh, typically receive no formal training in communication skills. And to date, no governing body within performance coaching or physio realm provides training programs to help them do that. And so, I mean, that is a significant chasm. And to go further, even if you look at sport coaching, right, there was a review in 2016 that showed out of 285 coach development programs, 261 were solely focused on coaches' technical and tactical knowledge you know, and, and, and so like when you consider that coaching and, and again, I use coaching as a synonym for leadership, especially as our work continues to cross over because our workshops are open to everybody. We don't do this thing that you see so often in the performance space where it's only for uh, physios or only for strength coaches. Like if you guys come to one and I'd love for you to come as my guest, you might be right across from somebody that is just a firefighter or somebody that's a teacher. But, but when you look at this, we're social beings engaging in a social act in a world that is becoming increasingly social and decentralized and in very complex ways. And I just think it's really dangerous. I think it's dangerous if you have uh, that much of a chasm, because uh, we we know this, I mean, even looking at how people, and, and not to get too into this kind of stuff, but like, you look at how people identify as different genders now, and all these pieces, like, how are coaches going to deal with this stuff in 20 years?
2: Not going to be easy for them.
0: <laughs> right. And, and so it's just, I don't know. I I, I want to ask you guys a question because obviously you're interested in this and I, and I think, you know, I, would encourage you not that you wouldn't, right. But we're still getting to know each other, just like be real. Um, what we found is generally, I want to frame this so I can uh, give you context. What we found is the majority of the people that come to our workshops when we ask them why, cause it is scary, right? I mean, I don't care who you are. It's, it's, it can be weird to role play um, until you get a feel for the room and the environment and, you know, you never really know if the facilitator is going to try to make you look stupid so they can make themselves look better, which we certainly don't do. Um, but what most of them say is, you know what? I decided to do this because I got tired of all the other things and I needed something hard. I needed to kind of have that lump in my throat again, put myself under the microscope. Does that stuff, does the idea of role-playing, does the idea of of working on that stuff being evaluated, does that intimidate you guys? You know, like, uh, w- would you feel like, oh shit, like, what if I mess up, you know, is my expertise then going to be real? Like, how do you guys look at those kinds of challenges in your professional development?
1: I always would say, yeah, I think I being on stage it. like that, I'd be self probably critical a lot of the time. So yeah. Performing well is important, even though it's given insights to going up a level, going back like the Kobe quote, when you lose, you learn yep. from your opponents, give you clues. I know that inherently, and I want to be like that, but there's still an, there's still an ego there I want to perform when I go on them moments, even role play or anything like that, I'd want to do well rather than do what's going to serve me best in the
2: future. My my dad would have always said to me, put yourself into uncomfortable situations. You're going to, it's going to be hard, but you'll learn from it and you'll grow from it. You'll get better for it. So I, it's one of the big life lessons he's given to me. And I kind of take that as a dad and I try to take that into work. So yeah, like I just take a breath and I'd go for it, but you know, understand it could be hard, but at the end of it, reflection afterwards, it's it's a good thing. So that's where I would be first.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I think that that shows again, why you guys are where you are. I just, I hope more people listening understand that if they're a physio, you know, they, they have to put their clients in situations as they're working. My dad's about to get a a complete shoulder reconstruction, right? As, as part of his physio, he's going to have to work through pain. He's going to be in uncomfortable situations. The whole, even after going to a physio is very uncomfortable for my father, right? He's, He's kind of old school in, in the sense that, uh, you know, he he doesn't really work out. He's not really active. He's the guy that goes to physical therapy appointments in jeans and, you know, <laughs> God knows whatever shoes. One of them. One oh, of those people. But <laughs> the point is, is like, he has to embrace discomfort. We tell people to do that every day. As a strength coach, I had to tell people to do things like pause squats and isometric lunge holds and things that just, you know, even if they're a tremendously skilled athlete, it was my job to find things in an ethical and purposeful sense, right? That put them in situations where they they were going to fail, and they had to they had to grow from a physical development standpoint. I just think it's really scary if we don't do the same thing ourselves culturally um, in the in those circumstances. I think that's very very concerning, and I think that for these collective fields to be considered more of a profession, they're going to have to engage more in the interpersonal side in a way that is more than just performative, right? I've read the books. Yeah, I did a, a brief kind of uh, course on athlete safety and well wellbeing. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. So we're constantly going down to answer another question. You said, to me, even going into this research of human behavior and decision-making has been cathartic because early on when we got so much pushback from this, uh, it was just interesting because we saw our, our, courses fill up routinely with firefighters, people in the corporate space, people in police forces, all that. And, and for a while, the coaching side of it was scarce. And then now, now it's definitely almost overcorrected, you know, where we have to make a conscious effort to not just host them at gyms or physio clinics, because otherwise that can be kind of weird for people in other professions to come. But, you know, I, I do think within the next five years, it's almost like communication is the cryptocurrency of this stuff. As absurd as that sounds, people are going to continue to realize that like might look foreign, might not be what they thought it was, but it's going to be to some degree the way the world operates.
1: Yeah, love that, Brett.
2: Right, one more for me, and then we're going kind to of kick it to Kiron. But just just for the listeners, building your brand the right way, understanding value, public speaking, how to separate yourself, understanding communication. Check out Brett's work. It's a uh, tier one and, and Brett will be, we will be signing up for the course, I'm curious to see how I would test myself. Um, last one for me. And then order to Kieran. Brett is you mentioned hip hop You're mm. talking to a guy that spent four years in Canada, played basketball, rap and hip hops close to my heart. My favorite track is triumph Wu Tang, a, a bit more towards the rap, but met them a couple of times asking you the question, what's your favorite hip hop track and why, why?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to say I'm very thankful when you said you spent some time in Canada. I thought you were going to go on about, you know, Drake or Cardinal Official or, you nah, know, like man, I thought nah. you were going to get down to the Canadian rapper kind of nah. thing. Um, my favorite track will vary um, in accordance with context. I can definitely tell you who some of my top five are, but I would say if I had to pick one today based on my 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 state today, um, let's see. My favorite track today, uh, if you were to turn on a song and get me fired up, it would be Square Dance by Eminem. Now, that would not be my favorite track in totality, right? Uh, My favorite track, and I'm I'm very much a lyrics guy, like I'll pick up on the syncopation, like even if you hear like Eminem the way I am, right? How Mm. that kind of emphasis on the syllable and in the uh, song Mockingbird, how every time he hit a certain word on the snare of the beat... And I'm talking about like the Eminem from like actual albums, not like when people hear stuff on the radio. That's kind of the sing songy. Uh, but I would say another one, just being a father, and this one's a little darker, um, is Castle, and that is off a more recent M&M album. That said, uh, man, I could go on for days about that. And the reason for the affinity for Eminem, by the way, is I just always identified, and and this kind of leads into the next question about brand. I never had a formal mentor. Okay. Nobody ever put their hands around me and said, this is, let me show you the ropes. You know, I had situational mentors, some good, some bad, and you learn from them, but I never had a mentor. What I did have was a year of my life in a hospital where you were controlled what you could watch on TV. uh, What you read was controlled uh, and, but you could listen to whatever you wanted. And in that hospital, uh, all I had the day I went up, there was a bunch of like, uh, workout songs on my MP3 player. And a lot of them were Eminem. And so Eminem specifically the song like eight mile road and stuff like that. That was all I had while I sat up to eight hours a day in this, you know, day room, the stuff that I talk about in conscious coaching. And, um, I, I thought of, you know, hip hop is such a unique art form in that it's storytelling, it's mastery of the the English language. If people are listening to true hip hop and they're breaking down the lyrics. And so in one presentation uh, called Confessions of a Strength Coach, I have a slide that shows three mentors of mine. And, and it was meant to catch people off guard. And there's Eminem, there's 50 Cent, and there's Dr. Dre. And what I say, and I'm gonna be brief here because I've been long-winded in so many other things, is Eminem represents the technical aspect, the mastery, the superiority of that. And whether I, you know, it's strength coach Brett or, you know, leadership training Brett or the Brett that I am now as an entrepreneur everything we do, there is 17 different levels, 14 of which you will not even see that go into our work, right? And how it's structured and how it's visualized. Uh, for 50 Cent, that was more of somebody who was somebody that evolved, right? He, he, yes, he, he started off as a drug dealer. Then he was a musician. Now he's an entrepreneur and you could argue he's made more money in movies than he ever did in music. That represented me not being scared to evolve in my field, when I decided to not just train athletes full time and work more in the corporate space and do these other things, originally I was called to sell out by some of like, you know, that small, like 5% of the old guard that is just used to so many strength coaches basically dying on the job. And I'm, I'm being facetious, but we do make a point that how many strength coaches, you know, are financially well off, actually healthy in a good relationship. Like it's, it's almost a career you don't retire from. Like they, people just, they don't, they go to the next job and the next job and the next job, and then they just kind of disappear. Um, And then Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre was somebody that was more visionary. And if you know his background, again, a DJ, a rapper, a producer, and then he helped Jimmy Iovine create Beats by Dre and they sold it to Apple. So I think when I I assess myself professionally, I need somebody that's a craftsman that actually does what they say they did. Their background's bona fide, their skill set's legit, but they're also not scared to put their head in the clouds while keeping their hands on the grindstone. It's great to hear the depth into it. I'm Pretty a weirdly popular. deep guy. It's yeah. not always a good thing. We'll
2: talk about Up and Smoke another time, Brett. You and I. Best documentary yeah, ever. God, let's go to you. a concert together, fellas.
1: We'll certainly enjoy the Pepsi halftime show as well. That's yeah. 50 Cent and Dre.
0: Oh, my God. Kendrick Lamar, Eminem, 50 Cent Dre. Snoop Dogg, I respect him, but could kind of take it or leave it. I know he's iconic, but like, I feel like Snoop Dogg's kind of the Sam Jackson of hip hop like he's <laughs> in everything so you're just like give it a breath yeah,
1: yeah, that's True, Brad. so last question of the show and speaking of them high performers what does high performance mean to you brett
0: Ooh, man you're gonna catch me off i i'm one word adaptability i, I just think it is i'm sorry like i know that i'm not trying to be like cute or like esoteric but i am really a big believer in in, in if you can be one thing, be adaptable. And if you're like, that's not that's not enough, Brett. Okay. Be flexible. That's not enough, Brett. Okay. Know how to uh, engage and operate in the gray area. And the reason I say that is because when you're looking at high performance, whatever performance is, boardroom, weight room, classroom, anywhere in between, like we say in our podcast, um, there's never one style, one approach, anything like that that works all the time. Are either of you parents?
2: Parents of two. I'm two Okay. Kids.
0: Love it. and But like, I'm not going to be one of those guys that's like, oh, well, you'll understand it when you're a parent. You get it. <laughs> but like saying there's one kind of way to lead, coach, anything. And again, coaching is a synonym uh, ubiquitous to anything we're talking about here. Uh, it, it Effective coaching and leadership is in the gray area, just like effective parenting is. One parent takes this approach. Another one takes that approach. Who's right? Who's wrong? You know, do you spank your kids? Do you not spank your kids? All right, this person does. That person doesn't. What's their context? What's the culture? What's this? What's the instance? What's the circumstance? And so like that, that's what I mean when we say that we're trying to help people interact during better during times when it matters most, really we're having like, if you you went to my website and it's, I could be better with the word smithery, but on like brettbartholomew.net, I literally say, you know, poor communication nearly cost me my life. Now I help others navigate the gray area of social interaction so they can be more adaptable leaders. And I think that's what it is. If I want an athlete, it was the same thing if I'm talking, if I'm not talking about communication, Even when I would program for athletes, um, you know, you could argue, I mean, how long is the profession going to worry about, oh, this exercise better than that exercise? This exercise, well, then who? I remember on Twitter one day, I got into it. This was like a long time ago. I don't do this shit anymore. Um, I was working with a Navy SEAL that, you know, he had just gotten basically blown up uh, overseas during deployment, shrapnel in his back, you know, like the guy was never going to squat again. Like he'd squat when he went to the toilet, right? But he was never going to do an actual loaded squat. And there just wasn't going to be a point to it, right? We could trap bar deadlift him. We could do some single leg split squats. There was a lot of other stuff. And um, I remember he was trying to get a special, like uh, he was trying to get a job doing security detail, uh, but he had to do a, a running test for it, right? So we did need to get him quicker. We did need to work on those kinds of things. And so I remember I just put up a tweet one day and it was after I think I got like the 1000th journal article talking about how much barbell squatting helps sprinting speed or at least acceleration, right? In the initial stages. And I had put a tweet out that was like, you know, it'd be really nice if if instead of just saying the same thing over and over, we compared other methods. And actually a researcher from your guys' way decided to give me a little bit of a barb and said, well, you must not understand research. The point is, is to continually question ourselves again and again and again. And that was a clear example of poor communication because he didn't understand my context, right? I wasn't denigrating squatting research. Here I was training somebody that would never squat again. And I would have loved to have seen, all right, should I spend more time trap bar deadlifting this guy, doing lunges, split squat variations, other things? And the answer is you're going to do all of them, right? You want well-rounded program. But like, I just, I would have loved to have seen like something on alternative lower body strength exercises uh, and, and their correlation to acceleration. Right. Something that compared if you spent most of your time doing a trap bar deadlift versus heavier lunges versus rear foot elevated and all. So I, I said, hey, you know, I understand the point of research. I have a certain circumstance here where I'm trying to learn more about something else. And he's like, well, since you're the one with the access to all the elite athletes, why don't you do the research? And I'm just like, oh, my God, here we go. But that's a prime example of effective for that gentleman that I'm training. What's most effective at that point in time? You know, like who, who knows? Because there's there's many roads to Rome, and in human performance, whether you're leading a team or an or an office, there are so many different leadership approaches you can take. You can take the one you have to take is the one that has conducive fit with who you actually are. If I go try to lead like Cheryl Sandberg, or I try to lead like Alex Ferguson, or I try to lead like this person, you know, like I may not have that success. You're talking about complexity. It's akin to coronavirus, right? Like, sorry if this is uncomfortable for you guys. But we have nations locking down and doing all these things, and and I get it on the face, it makes sense. But this is a virus it's It's complex. you're not going to solve a complex issue with interventions that are complicated. And what I mean by that is complicated just for any of the listeners, and I'm not trying to like patronize. I'm sure many of them understand this. things that are complicated are things that like, yeah, it's a hard problem, but there's like uh there's instructions or like if we want to know the next solar eclipse and when it's going to hit and when it's going to go over Dublin and whatever. We can figure that out. That math is crazy, but we can figure it out. We can figure out manufacturing automobiles. We can figure out how to make communication happen like is happening right now. Those are complicated. Complex is like trying to predict the weather, predict human interaction to a T, right? Like, And weather isn't the same as climate. Some people will be like, oh, you can predict the weather. No, you can't. You do have norms of climate, but the weather, the climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. And so I just feel like this whole leadership coaching dynamic is so crazy where we're creating cardboard cutouts of people that think this is the best way to high performance, when in reality, the best way is the most adaptable, flexible way within the constraints of your own environment and the context of your own strengths. So that's a one word answer and a friggin', you know dissertation on it
2: you've touched on it all you just want to say thanks very much really grateful for your time oh we got so much from that brett we're actually it's just piqued our curiosity even more about the work you do so that's 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 a huge platform as to why we wanted to speak to you in the first place to just learn what you do and why you do it so just thanks very much for giving us your time today
0: Hey, my pleasure. And I want you to know that your collective dulcet tones have piqued my curiosity. And do you guys give a solid handshake? You know, like what do you what do you smell like? What kind of cologne do you use? I see on your website you have this, uh, David. It's an amazing wool jacket. I don't know if that's Tom. uh, Is that Tom Ford? Merino
2: wool, Merino wool, yeah. Merino
0: wool. And and Kiran, I want to know what you use in your hair. I mean, that hair is. Uh, oh, you well, also pomade, pomade, pomade,
2: yeah. American Crew pomade. <laughs>
0: you also have. Hold on, I gotta look up his name. You have a doppelganger here. I can't let you go without you. Uh, you knowing this? Oh my god! <laughs> uh, Mitch Matthews. Well, if you okay. look up Mitch Matthews, and just Google image him, Mitch Matthews, wide receiver. If you pick the right photo. Right. <laughs> if you pick the is right young, photo.
1: Where am I looking? GQ? What, what? Uh, <laughs> I
0: looking? mean just go to Google yeah. Mitch Mitch Wide Receiver BYU is something you can do. Um, and yeah, you just look at it and you're not quite the Adonis Mitch is, you know, but I feel like <laughs> just with a few bicep curls and uh some, fasting tomorrow <laughs> BFR, you're on your way.
2: Oh, yeah, BFR. Oh, uh, I'll put
0: it to David. David. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he needs to grow a bit of stubble, but he's, he's about there, Brad. Well, listen, on sleep, eat, perform, repeat.com slash origins, he has a wonderful stubble, so you bite your tongue, David.
2: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. Uh, thanks
0: very much. That was cool. My pleasure. I hope to see you guys soon.
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person well-being company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelled H A U O R A life.com. Please rate, review, and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen, some wish it would happen, others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.